Our Bible reading is in Numbers, and you can follow along on the screen. We're reading Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, and then jumping into John's Gospel, and you'll see why when we get there. So, Numbers chapter 20, 1 to 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. And there, Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates. There is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak. To that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out from this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. In verse 21, verses 4, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route by the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray. The Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And then a few verses in John chapter 3. From verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God to love the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This week has been um, quite confronting for me on lots of ways. Uh, and, and most notably is that I've realised that God's people have a history of grumbling, which means I have a history of grumbling. And so here's 
10 seconds of thinking about 10 ways I've grumbled this week. And you can add to it, and I'm sure you've, you can relate. Um, this week, I've grumbled. Without even, I didn't try to grumble. I grumbled about traffic. I grumbled about not getting responses to emails. I grumbled about children not being able to find their shoes. I grumbled about dropping something. Petrol prices. People making bad decisions. The dog getting muddy footprints in the house after I just cleaned the house from the dog getting muddy footprints in the house. I grumbled about being tired. I grumbled that I ran out of coffee. I grumbled that the kids' room was messy. And on and on you can go. But you know, actually, today's not about grumbling. And, uh, and at this point in numbers, it really does feel like God's people should be out of chances. They've grumbled. We've looked at it quite quickly, but if you read Numbers 11 to where we are now, it's almost every chapter is filled with grumbling. But actually, God's not out of mercy. And when I think about my week and my heart and my grumbling, I'm actually really, really glad about that. Because if you're like me in any way, the big idea from these two chapters in Numbers is really, really good. And it does make us feel a little bit wrecked and, un- and-, and-, and convicted about grumbling. Because the big idea is that God saves us from our complaining and our lack of faith. God saves us from our complaining and our lack of faith. That's what we'll see today. And in fact, what was challenging for me is that no one's exempt from grumbling. Because the story begins in chapter 20 with Moses, their leader, and Aaron, the two people that look after all these people, grumbling. It's very hard to see from verse 1, but it's been 40 years since chapter 14. They've actually spent the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and they're back in the wilderness of Zin where we left them last week. And you can see on the map, they're going to move by the end of this chapter to the top of Moab. But they've got a few things to do along the way, and you can see the little the pictures. Miriam dies, the water from the rock, they go round to Edom, that's significant. Then the, the snake happens in the pole, and they finally go all the way up. And then they're going to sit here in chapter 22 for the next three chapters just sitting at Moab. That's it. And next week we'll meet Balaam and Balak and why that's so significant. And so 40 years, this entire generation's rebelled from God and they've been slowly fading away. And Miriam's death reminds us of that. The generation that didn't want to go into the promised land is not going into the promised land. They will not get the rest and inheritance God gives them. But God in his mercy will get their kids into this place. But as the saying goes, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree and this new generation hasn't learnt from the mistakes of the past yet. In verse 2, we read that there is no water. It shouldn't be a problem because God's been giving them water every day for 40 years. But by default here, they get to this new place, new season again, and they do what us Australians like to do. Uh, That is, they grumble and complain about their leaders. Their leaders' inability to understand them, their perspective, their concern. They turn to Moses and say, and Aaron, ugh. And they do three things, which is really interesting. They catastrophize the situation. You notice that in verse 3, they quarrel with Moses. If only we had died when our brothers perished. You've only brought us out here to die. No, actually, you're the generation that's going to get in. You haven't been led here to die. There's a promised land full of life and provision and rest right in front of you. What are you doing? They catastrophize. Then their perspective's off. They call this place terrible with nothing good. But it's the wilderness. 
Of course it's terrible. <laughs> it's not meant to be their home. It's not meant to be a place you flourish in under life. Of course it has nothing good in it. They're looking around and 40 years ago they've heard the stories of the big grapes and the wonderful land. They get to the border and they go, we can't see it. Well, yes. It's not meant to have figs and pomegranates. This is the wilderness. But you see, as much as they grumble, their perspective's off, they catastrophize, the bi- this chapter isn't about the people. Like I said, it's, it's the leaders that God actually pulls up here. It's about Moses and Aaron because they let the frustration of these people dominate their attitudes and not the grace of God. So Moses heads off to see God, as he always does, and God speaks from the tent of meeting, as he always does, and God tells him to do something that's really strange. He says, take the staff. Take the staff, you and your brother Aaron. Gather the people together. Now that staff was with Moses in Egypt, banging on the water, turned the Nile to blood, crossed the Red Sea. It's a staff that Moses earlier struck the rock with when they needed water in Exodus 17 all those years ago. This is a staff of judgment and power. If you saw Moses with the staff, it'd be like mum with the big wooden spoon if you grew up in that family. Something's going to happen and it's not going to be good. That's kind of the impression you get. Moreover, everyone should be here for this. So take the staff. And then talk to the rock. Speak to the rock before they rise and it will pour out its water. Now this is the rock or that rock. This is the rock from Exodus 17 that's been picked up and carried with them every day of their journey in the wilderness. Previously, God had said, hit the rock. But this time, Moses isn't to hit the rock, is he? What is he supposed to do with the rock? Speak. Hold the staff and just speak. And it's an ironic reminder here that um, grumbling makes you harder than stone because the rock's more obedient than the people at this moment. And then he says, taste. Taste the refreshment. You'll bring water out and the animals and people will drink. Now, when Moses hit the rock earlier in the life of God's people, it was a picture of God being struck for their sins. This time, Moses only has to speak to the rock. And the point, the picture, is that it's costly to keep sustaining people that grumble and sin. It's costly to God because he absorbs their punishment. But this time, the striking, sorry, the striking only happens once. From now on, Moses can just appeal to what has already happened, which is why he speaks. Don't hit the rock again. Just appeal to what's already happened. That's why he has the stick. It's a striking picture because later we learn what this image is showing us. It's, it's Jesus before the incarnation, right? It's the idea that he both provides life and absorbs judgment, being struck once on the cross, but always ready to hear his people cry out for mercy. It's the image of grace and judgment and provision right there, and it's something that Moses should have seen loud and clear. He should have drank deeply from God's grace at that moment as well. But, and I don't blame him and neither should you, 40 years have really worn Moses out. And, and, and he explodes in frustration and rage. Listen, you rebels, he says. He's so angry that grace evaporates. He's harsh, he's cruel, he's frustrated. He's imagined that he now has to save everyone. Must we bring water out of this rock? Like, it's all up to me. God's word takes a back seat in this, in this moment. 
He doesn't hear God properly. He doesn't obey God rightly. He takes matters into his own hands and he says, I'll raise my arms up and he hits the rock twice. He didn't speak at the rock. He yelled at the people. It's a sad, horrible picture of how not to be a leader of God's people. But you know what's so surprising about this? Is that water gushed out from the rock even after Moses was so unfaithful? How can that be? I mean, surely God should have said, whoa, hold on, no, 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 Moses, get back in your box. Why does it still come out? Because the water arriving and feeding God's people does not depend on Moses' words or attitude, but on God's sure word. God has said it. Sinful people are sometimes still instruments of grace, not because of them, but in spite of them. Yes, Moses' outburst is totally unacceptable. He disobeys God completely. God knows the needs of his people. They need water. Moreover, the Lord holds him to account either. Verse 12, Moses, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. God saw, God judges, and that is good. God's leaders are never beyond the same standard as all of God's people. And God never says to Moses, you didn't obey me enough. He says, you didn't trust in me enough. But the problem with Moses was he no longer thought that God's word, God's holiness actually, was what the people needed. All he could see was a bunch of frustrating inconveniences standing in front of him. And he'd forgotten in that moment the key part of his job description, leading God's people to a holy God. The, um, the pastor, Robert Murray McShaney, who died of tuberculosis, I think, at 26, great impact. Um, you may have heard or read one of his books, but he said, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. He said that 150 years ago, and it's still just as true today. Why is that? Because leaders in the church can't lead people to a holy God if they themselves are not holy. God never calls his leaders to to beat and berate the people. He always calls them to lead them to living water, to love them, to urge them gently on. Yes, to warn them, but to bring them to Jesus, the rock, the Holy One himself, from a place of humility and grace. Never out of frustration, never out of anger. Because in forgetting that, what Moses has done is he's given the impression that God is not gracious anymore, that God has had enough with his people, because he says, must we bring water? As in, you've run out of chances with God, I went to God, and now it's up to me. It's a horrible picture to paint, isn't it? That God has no more grace, and you have to save yourselves, and moreover, you have to trust a man to do it. I mean, this is, this is not undermining the role that God's leaders have. It doesn't say, oh, we don't need them. It's a reminder that God holds them to a very high level of accountability. It's a reminder that we do need leaders, actually, who are so overcome with God's holiness, they can direct us to gaze at God's glory more and more, to help us take our eyes off of our own sin and grumbling and to find grace in Him. 
Moreover, I know that some of you have been hurt by God's leaders in the past. And I'm sorry that you've experienced that. And from this moment in Numbers, may you take a slither of comfort in knowing that God sees and knows like he saw and knows Moses' actions. And may you know that when God's leaders fail, God is still holy and good. Because God is not basing his holiness and nature on his people's performance any more then you and me should base our standing on God based on our performance or the sins that have been done to us. Because the disciples didn't walk away from Jesus because of Judas. And even though some of God's leaders will falter and fail, God raises up others to keep the remnant of his people focused on him. And that's the rest of Numbers 20, actually. A new high priest replaces Aaron and soon after Joshua replaces Moses. The consequence is Moses will not get into the land. He'll see it from afar. In the New Testament, he'll be there in spirit with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he won't get to live in there. God's leaders are not immune from the grumbles. And all of us, me included, need a better leader than Moses to look to. Someone who will not get frustrated when his people sin like that. Someone who will save us from ourselves because the next part shows us that it's not just the leaders that grumble, it's actually everyone grumbles. When God's people grumble. And I think my most grumbling moment is definitely driving. And you may feel that way too. And particularly with roadworks. Or the one 40-kilometre speed sign that was left out for about three weeks that just had no purpose anymore. And I have a moral conflict that says I have to keep the speed limit, but I know that now the lines are painted and it's just, you can feel it rising, can't you? And, and this moment, I reflect on it. This is, that moment is exactly where God's people are in verse 4 of chapter 21. They travelled to Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. In the map, they didn't go through Edom, they went way down the bottom, like a, a huge detour. Go to Melbourne through Darwin and then Queensland and then back down. That's kind of the, the detour they went on. And to no one's surprise, they grumble. And I get it. Tired of being in the wilderness for 40 years. Your home is, you can see it, and then you have to go around the detour. Tired of wandering, tired of manna, tired of everything. And the thought of having to go a long way around is devastating. It's another delay. I don't blame them. But they let God and his leaders have it again, don't they? The food stinks, you're leading us to death in verse 5, there's no water. Unless we think grumbling, here's the thing, unless, unless we think grumbling's a minor thing, God vividly judges them in verse 6. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many died. These snakes are also said to be burning fire snakes, not just poisonous. Is that referring to the colour or how the bite felt maybe? I don't think so. I think the idea of these burning snakes is it shows divine judgment. The snake, a snake of fire, 
reminds us of the fire that lead God's people, the burning bush, the presence of God. And now God's holiness breaks out against the grumbling people in judgment, right? And the snake, moreover, calls us back to the Garden of Eden, to the serpent which deceived Adam and Eve, away from God's loving rule and care. The snake is always a picture of the enemy of mankind, which we saw in Egypt. And, and until this moment, Egypt is the dominant evil figure. Pharaoh is an enemy of God's people, just like the snake is. And for the snakes to come with fire, it's God's way of saying, do you want to live under the oppression of Pharaoh again? Because God is against them now as they grumble. It's not about being a little bit ungrateful. They're speaking against God. They're denying that God is sovereign and good. It's denying that God is gracious and with them. And for the first time, this new generation tastes a moment of what it's like to live under the evil one under the oppression of Egypt. And like their parents did, they cry out for relief, for the snakes to be taken away. Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. And this is what they learn. And what they learn that their grumbling parents didn't is that they realize they've sinned by speaking against the Lord. We've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord. And so God says, um, do something really strange, get a snake, stick it on a pole, look to it. When anyone, anyone was bitten, you'll be healed. And then they lived. And this is where you may see it at the doctors or medical symbols have a snake on a pole. This is where it all comes from, from this moment. It's a powerful sign that God is the true sovereign over Egypt and evil and Satan and even death. Because only God can heal a bitter heart and only God can heal the snake bite of sin. And this whole event seemed to have a positive effect on the people too. Don't think it ends all badly and they're, they're moping in the desert. This is the second generation. And if you remember the graph, they kind of go up and down and they're almost at the bottom, but they're going to start to make their way up. Because soon after this moment, in chapter 21, they run out of water again. And you expect them to grumble once more. But do you know what happened when they ran out of water this time? They sing. Here's what Numbers 21 verses 6 to 18 says. They continued on to beer. They didn't drink beer. It's the name of the place. The well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing about it, about the well the princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with scepters and staff. This is so significant. They've grumbled every day of their journey. We've seen it today, especially about a lack of water. They've received judgment because of their attitude against Moses and God and Moses can't come in the land and they had snake bites and the snake on a pole and they realized they've sinned and this generation faced with the same trouble and temptation as their parents responds with repentance and faith and praise. God turns their grumbling into gratitude in the wilderness. Grace has made way for singing which you can't do when you grumble. I mean, how can you delight in God and what he's done when you're too busy grumbling about what God hasn't done and what you haven't got from him yet? It doesn't work. 
And so they journey on in the wilderness, traveling slowly through the outer lands as trophies of grace with a new song in their mouth. We've never heard them sing this. We've never heard them sing in numbers. Moses gave them a benediction, but typically they don't sing. But this is a song the whole community gets behind. Once you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, singing about his kindness to us, in this case water, is natural. Sometimes you have to fight for that. Sometimes, like me, I don't default to thanking and praising and being grateful. But today we leave God's people in chapter 21 much better than we began with. Why? Because they tasted their sin and they tasted God's grace. Because God is sufficient to save us from our complaining and our lack of faith. And this image of the rock and the snake always stuck with God's people. In two kings later on in the story, it's sad because the snake's destroyed because they turn it into an object of idol worship and they miss the point. But it's always part of their history. Because in one day when Nicodemus talks to Jesus in John chapter 3, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you're a Jewish man, you're a leader, you, you get this stuff. You know, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And just as the snake on a pole was a sign to be believed and find healing and life, so too Jesus says, my crucifix has the same effect. The wage of sin is death, but when Jesus was lifted up, he paid for it. Jesus crushed the head of the snake, the ancient serpent, the enemy of God and his people. Jesus was bitten on his heel, as Genesis 3.15 says. He died. He suffered the death chronic grumblers and those who speak against God deserve. But God is stronger than the serpent. He's kinder than Moses. He's more satisfying the water from a rock. The worst Satan could do is just bite Jesus on the foot. He couldn't keep Jesus dead. And from his resurrection, the Holy Spirit creates a river of living water in us, flowing deep and strong. This rock, Jesus, has poured the waters of life into all those who have faith who look at his cross, who find eternal life and recovery from the snake bite of sin, who find the solution to all our grumbling, who are given a new song to sing about the God who meets us with grace upon grace who find that when we do grumble on the road of life, we can confess our sins like the people didn't find mercy. And slowly, day by day, we are assured that God is transforming us into people who are grateful, to be a people who celebrate God and his faithfulness to us in Jesus. The second song in Numbers 21 is a victory song for what God has done. They praise God not for providing water, but also providing the victory that they need and that's what Jesus does. He satisfies us with living water. He's the victory that we need. And in response, we praise God for all he has done. And so then let's be people who are known for grace and gratitude and not grumbling. Let's be people who keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sits at the right hand of God. And if you're like me, you're going to grumble this week. And I know, I, I admit, I will grumble this week too. But we learn from this an example of how to not live. And by God's grace, I will not grumble. 
I'll be full of gratitude. So this week, praise God and today, why not share with someone just one reason you're grateful for all Jesus has done. Just one thing, I love Jesus to bits because, what is it? And I'll say that by the spirit of river, living water in me, he reminds me very sharply when I grumble, uh, I've been redeemed for something more and God's looking after me. What is it for you? Let me pray and then we're going to sing two songs. As God's people started to sing in the desert, we're going to sing two. And then Michael will lead us in prayer and we'll finish with one final song as well. Father God, you are so kind when we grumble. You see all our grumbling and you provide grace. And Jesus, you save us from ourselves. You defeated the enemy at the cross and we can look to you and find healing for our souls. And so Lord, we feel weak and we feel uh, full of ungratefulness and bitterness at times. Father, may, not that, may that not be the place we live, but may you lift us up, put our feet on the rock, put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God, and have mercy on us when we grumble this week. In your name we pray. Amen.